If I were to ask you what the goal of the Christian life is, we'd have different answers. We'd have different ideas of what's the goal? What am I striving for here on this life? Is it just to get to heaven? Is it to be a better person? One of the ideas or thoughts that might very well come to mind is the picture of being like Jesus, somehow becoming like Jesus. And it's the language that Paul uses here in Romans chapter 8 near the end. And I want to reread that last passage and kind of start tying together some of what we're going to think about this morning. Where it says, and we know, this is Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been a called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so that language, being conformed to the image of his son, so that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And so what I want us to see is there's a connection, I think, that's being made between this picture of being conformed to the image of the Son and being glorified. And as you listen to that passage, you've been around church, there's a whole bunch of church words there. That's just a loaded thing. There's predestined and called and all these languages. But I want us to focus on those couple words and what those ideas mean. And I want to give credit as we're looking at this to a scholar that's helped me a lot, um, a Dr. Haley Gorenson Jacob, and has written a lot on this particular passage and on this topic. And she talks a lot about this. But what we want to see, first of all, is Romans chapter 8 is part of a bigger letter. And it's so easy when we're reading our Bibles and we all have favorite verses and favorite passages. And some of you may very well look at Romans chapter 8 and say, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, or maybe just some of these verses here. We put them on coffee mugs and on screensavers and put them up on our walls. And it's great, but we fail to see when we do that sometimes how it fits in this bigger picture. That when this Roman church, so Paul, an early follower of Jesus, wrote to the church in Rome, and he writes this letter called what we call the book of Romans. He writes to this church that's going through division, but he's also explaining to them what the good news of Jesus is all about, what the gospel is, this message of King Jesus and his saving reign, and how he invites us to come into this, and how we've messed it up, and, and God comes in and saves us through Jesus. He justifies us. He makes us right. He forgives us, declares us righteous, but also changes and transforms us. He gives it as a gift, a gift of grace, which we receive by faith, by this saving allegiance to Him. And when we do that, we're changed and transformed, and that's this picture of justification that we go from death to life, from slavery to sin, to slavery to life, or in chapter 7 and 8, this life in, this death versus life in the Spirit, and He's talking through all these different ideas and pictures. And He comes to this part where He's kind of building up to a bigger argument, and He's going to move on to some other things later. But he talks about this idea of being conformed to the image of the Son. So if you were to think about that and say, what does it look like to be like Jesus? And we use that language of to be like Jesus. What do you think Paul is getting at when he's saying we're going to be conformed to the image of his Son? Sometimes we think of it as just being a better person, being moral and upright. I mean, we think of Jesus. Jesus was the good guy. He didn't do anything wrong, right? He didn't sin. And that's true. So being conformed to the image of the Son is that. Or is it we're raised from death to life like Jesus. And I think those are part of it, but there's something more. Or this word glory. And he talks about this picture about us being glorified or having glory. And glory is a great church word. I mean, I, 
Do you use glory for like much of anything? I guess, I guess sometimes we talk about glory, but when we talk about glory, what, it, what kind of words or ideas come to mind? But sometimes it's just like the glory of God, right? And so we just finished the Christmas season. And the Christmas season talks about glory, and there's the story in Luke chapter 2 where the angels appear to these shepherds on the hill. And if you're familiar with the old King James Version, probably you learned best from watching the Peanuts Christmas special. What the angel of the Lord appeared unto them, and what? The glory of the Lord shone round about them. And so we think of glory as like this shining. So is that what it's talking about? Is that what the goal of the Christian life is we're going to glow? We're going to shine? Or is it something else that's going on? And I think there's something else in that there's a connection between being conformed to the image and the glory of the Son and us being glorified. So we're going to pick up a little bit from where we uh, talked just before Christmas in verses 14 through 17. And again, ignoring that heading and break. And he's, Paul's talking about how we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, that we're children. And then he concludes with this line, in 8.17, where he says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So somehow we're sharing in Christ's glory. We kind of got this picture of like, what is it talking about? We're just talking about glory. And glory comes up a couple times here as you were listening, as John was reading there. He says, in verse 18, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then in verse 21, where it says, brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And then down in verse 30, and those he justified, he also glorified. Glory is going to be revealed in us. We've been brought to glory. We've been glorified. So, which all leads to the, back to the question of, what is glory? What is this word glory talking about? What does it mean for us to have glory? I think we get the good idea of when we talk about the glory of God. You know, God's presence, His magnificence, His wonder. And we understand what it means to give glory to God, to praise Him, to honor Him. But what does it mean for people to have glory? And one of the things that if we were to look back in the Old Testament, look at all these pictures of it, glory in the Old Testament, as it talks about people, is primarily about status and honor and character. It's about something given to them, and it really doesn't ever have to do with shining, except for one, one story, Moses, when he comes down and his face is shining, but that's the only one. But most of the time when it talks about glory for people, it's about a status and honor, a position they have. So like in Genesis 45, 13, this is Joseph at the end of his time. He says, tell my father about all the honor Really, the word there is glory accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. And so this picture of this status, this position that's been given to Joseph. And so this picture of glory is status and honor. And so we see this in Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is this great picture. And the question really is, I mean, the psalmist is writing and he asks in verse 4, what is mine that mankind, you are mindful of them, human beings that you care about them. In other words, here's this person looking at the wonder, the immensity of creation, all the things that there are, kind of asking the question, God, why do you care about me? What, what, I mean, 
why are we so special as people? What makes us more special than whales or orangutans or lemurs or whatever other creatures are out there or about trees or the ocean or the mountains? I mean, I was just took my daughter out to Colorado and we saw just parts of the foothills there around the Denver area. And these things are huge. And they're glorious and magnificent. And it makes you kind of wonder, it's like, well, with those mountains, with the Rocky Mountains and these huge peaks, and me, just a little tiny thing, why does God care about me? And that's kind of what this psalmist is writing. Or if you've gone down to the lake or looked up at the stars in the sky and you're looking, and as maybe if you follow science, they've launched these new tele uh, telescopes, the the Hubble telescope and now the Webb, and it's seeing these galaxies and it's, we're learning that there are millions of galaxies and each one has millions of stars and just the huge immensity of the universe in which we live. And then we ask the question, what are we that God cares about us? But he said this about people, you have made them, that is people, a little lower than angels and crowned them with what? With glory. With glory and honor. What you made them rulers over the works of your hands, you put everything under their feet. And so this is that picture that's going on where he's talking through this. And what is the psalmist talking about? I think what the psalm writer is doing, he's connecting back to the first pages of the Bible. He's going back to the very beginning of the story of the Bible, and I don't have that up on the screen but Genesis chapter 1, you're going to see where you're like, I thought we were doing Romans. We're getting there, Romans. Don't worry. We'll get there. But we got to set this story. So this is Romans chapter 1, um, beginning of verse 27, or Genesis. We're in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, beginning of verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God gives them the command to rule over the fish in the sea, which sounds a whole lot like what he just said, what the writer in Psalm said, you made them lower and you made them rulers over the works of your hands. So what I think the Psalm writer is doing is he's making a commentary on Genesis. He's saying in the beginning, God created people and he created them in his image. So keep that word in mind, image. In his image. And what a part of the image was what? To, to rule over creation. The psalm writer picks it up and says, you have what? Crowned them with glory. So we have image and glory, which show up back in Romans. These words of image and glory. And they're connected. And it has to do with what? Ruling over creation being God's representative, his vice regents. So to be crowned with glory is to rule. And so this picture of glory or all those words given this status of. And that's what the story of the Bible is. That we have been given this task, a role to rule over things, but the story of the Bible is our failure to do this. And that's what Paul starts in Romans chapter 1. Is this beginning, we fail to do what he's called to do. And then God sends Jesus who does this. And in Romans chapter 5, again, we're kind of flying through all of Romans. Romans chapter 5, Paul describes Jesus as the new Adam. 
the new Adam, back to Genesis 1, the one who was called to rule over things, the new humanity, the reigning king. So here's where we start to come back to Romans and how this all connects together. Because in Romans chapter 1, says this, he's talking about people, and he says, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So exchange the glory of God. Well, it's not God's shininess. It's not God's glowing, but it's God, the glory and the status. In other words, we abdicated is maybe a better way to think of it. God gave us this position to rule over creation, but we abdicated and let the creeping things, all these other things, be in charge. Instead of being the rulers over creation, we began to listen to what creation had to say and subdue it. Shows up again in chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of, here we go again, that word, the glory of God. And I know for a long time, this was one of the first verses when I was, many of you may have memorized this verse. It's like, oh, here's the one we got to... And when we think about it, it's like we fall short of the glory of God, and oftentimes we think of that, well, God's moral perfection. We fall short. But I think it's that, but it's something more. It's about this idea of missing. It's the same language as 123. We exchange the glory of God. We fall short of the glory of God. It's people rejecting their calling and identity. God wants us to be holy, but we ask the question, why does He want us to be holy? Because there's something more, there's something going on. And so, here's where these things are all coming together. So we have, let's kind of walk through it. Genesis chapter 1, God creates people in His image to be His vice regents, His rulers, to rule under Him. The writer in Psalm says, you have crowned them with glory, and so he makes the connection. This is what it looks like. To be crowned with glory, to give, be given God's glory, is to rule over, to do what we've been called to do. Paul in Romans chapter 1 and then in 3 says, we've abdicated this glory. We've given up this glory. We've exchanged this glory. Rather than fulfilling our purpose, we're doing something else. And then the rest of Romans, Paul is starting to tra trace this idea that what God does in Jesus is begin to change that. That in Romans chapter 5, Jesus is the new Adam. He's the new representative. He shows us what we were created to do to rule and reign. And so when Paul is talking about glory, about being glorified, he's talking about being restored to our purpose. So he's saying when Paul's saying, I want you to be glorified, or when he's saying not I want you to be, but he's saying when Christ glorifies you, when God works this, glorifies you, he's saying you're restoring you to your original purpose. It's like taking an old car or old something that's, that's fallen apart and it's not working right. And you restore and you fix it up to do what it was meant to do. And you, you glorify, you restore what it was meant to be. And that's what Paul is getting at here with this picture of glorified. Or the language he uses also conformed to the image of the sun. So that's kind of the big picture. So now let's look at the passage a little bit and see how he does this. So Romans 8, 17 through 21. He kind of picks up this picture of creation being subject to decay. And so he has this language of, for the creation waits in eager expectation. The creation was subjected to frustration. And so he's looking at creation, meaning all of what God has made. From the tiniest thing to the greatest thing, this great universe in which we live, it's been subject to decay, but it will be freed when? 
when the children of God are brought into glory. When we're glorified, when we are brought into glory, creation is freed. So we can look at it the reverse way. When did creation begin to decay? When we forsake our glory. When we gave up our glory, when we failed to do what we meant to do, creation was subjected to decay. Now, when we are glorified, creation begins to be freed. And freed what? It was like you think of like, how is creation? Because it's not doing what it was meant to do. Now, Paul doesn't tell us here what creation was meant to do. Other places in the Bible suggest one of the reasons, one of the purposes of creation is to give glory to God. And so we're to free up creation to do this. We, forsake our, we forsook our glory back in Genesis 1. And then he goes on and he talks about groaning. And there's a whole lot of groaning going on here. Creation's groaning, we're groaning, the Spirit's groaning. You're all groaning because you're wondering how long this sermon's going to last. But there's this groaning going on here. And so what's that all about? It's this picture of what's going on and it's a sense of the groaning because human beings are looking at all the decay and all that's going on in creation and they don't know where to begin to start. How do we begin to pray? And we have these groans, but then it says the Spirit helps us. And we're going to come back to that. But it sets up this picture of waiting, of expectation that we're waiting to be redeemed and creation is waiting to be redeemed. And it's this strange language of where it says we eagerly await for our adoption, which is kind of strange because just a few verses earlier it says we've been adopted. So which is it? We're waiting for adoption or we've been adopted? It's both. It's what we've got to the already, not yet. In other words, there's these, some of it's become, but it's coming more fully. That glory is future, but glory is also now. And he talks about the redemption. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. That when we have redeemed bodies, we'll be able to fully do what God has called us to do, to rule like Psalm 8. We'll be sitting on the thrones and creation will be free. And so here's where Paul is walking through this story. And then he gets to this part about, it seems like an interruption. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, this is verse 26. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. So, Paul all of a sudden just decided to teach us about prayer. I think he's talking about something else. He's talking about what do we pray for? In other words, we're looking at all this going on and we're asked to pray. And we're faced with all the misery in the world. We were called to rule and reign over creation. We abdicated. Creation is suffering. The world is in a mess because we're not doing what we're supposed to do. And so we look around and then we, we start to ask that question, how do I pray for this? And what he's saying is we pray and sometimes we don't know what to pray. The Spirit helps us. But our prayer is also how we participate in ruling over creation. You know, that's how we participate in what God has called us to do. We're conformed to the image of the Son. And what does Jesus do? This is skipping ahead. This is next part of next week's passage, but Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Part of what Jesus does is praise for us, and part of what we're called to do is pray for creation and pray for others around us. So we come to this, but we're weak and we need the Spirit's help to pray. So we're kind of flying through this, but we're getting to the, the big conclusion now, and this is the one 
Not the conclusion of the sermon, conclusion of the passage. More groans, right? All right. And this is the one again. There is so much going on. This is like where all the weight falls and all these big words and going on. But I want us to focus on this idea of glory and image and rule. In verse 28, it says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Now, if you have your Bible out, you might see that there's a little footnote on that verse. And what that footnote says is there's different ways to translate this. There's different ways that we can understand these that because the Bible wasn't written in English. New Testament written primarily in Greek. And when we're looking at Greek, we have to say, how do we represent this verb in Greek into English? And how do we take this preposition? How do we take all these complicated things and translate them over into English? And most of the time, it's pretty clear. Sometimes there's some debate. And this is one of those verses because there's a, about three or four different ways it can be translated. One of the options, I think this is actually a better option, and it's down in my footnotes here, it says, and we know that in all things God works together with those who love Him to bring about good, with those who have been called according to His purpose. And so the verb that is often translated, and God works for the good, it's used four other times in the New Testament. Every time it's used, it's the idea of cooperating. And so I think it's a better, so God is working. See how it changes it? So God works for the good, or God works together with those who love him. So it's not working for the good of those who love him, but God's working together with those who love him. And so it's a picture of God doing just what he said he would do in Genesis chapter 1 when he created people and he said, I'm calling you to rule over, to participate with me. And so here in Romans 8, Paul is echoing that and he's saying, we are called to work together and God works together with those who love him to bring about good. So it's not just about God working in our bad situation, bringing about good. He's saying God works together with all of us those who have been called to bring about good. He's working with us to bring about good in the world. It's the redemption and liberation of creation comes when God's children are glorified, when we are called according to His purpose. And what's the purpose? To rule. So we're predestined, called, justified, and it ends with glorified, to be conformed to the image of His Son and to be glorified. So we're called to participate with Jesus in ruling over creation to do what we were created to do. So as Paul's building up this thing, we can get lost in all things. But I think what Paul is getting at is this idea of this is what God is doing through Jesus. We were created to rule over creation. We were created to be God's vice regents, his representatives. He crowned us with glory. In other words, he gave us his glory, his ruling status to we abdicated that rule. We gave up that glory. We exchanged that glory. We chose something else instead of him. But then in Jesus, he shows us what it looks like to be the right kind of person. He shows us what it looks like to be the humanity. And then through Jesus, he changes and transforms us and enables us to do exactly that, to rule over creation, to begin to change and to transform it. And so, 
Haley Gordonson Jacob says it this way. She says, the goal of salvation is believers' conformity to the Son of God, being like Jesus, their participation in His rule over creation. So Jesus is where right now? Reigning over creation. And He's inviting us to participate in this. And this is, to me, one of the amazing things that God does. I mean, God could do everything by Himself. Does God need us to do anything? No. But what does He do? He invites us to participate in His rule over creation as God's eschatological family. Fancy big word meaning like His family that He's been changed and transformed in the end times. But, and as renewed humanity, but only and always with the purpose of extending God's hand of mercy, love, and care to His wider creation. So He invites us to participate in His rule but sometimes we think of rulers as, well. I mean, what do rulers do? Sometimes they impose laws. They do. But the purpose of God's rule is what? Extend mercy and love and care. And she concludes it this way. This was humanity's job in the beginning. It will be believers' responsibility and honor in the future. And it is God's purpose in calling His people in the present. You see, the story of the Bible is one big picture. We were called to represent Him in the beginning. It's what we'll be doing, reigning and ruling in the end. And it's what we do right here and now. That's what I think Paul wants us to understand. When he talks about being called and predestined and justified, all these things, being conformed to the image of the Son, to be glorified, is to be used by God to bring about change in the world. To point people to Him but also to free creation, to spread His love and mercy and justice through action and through prayer. So the bigger question is, well, what does it look like? I mean, how many of us feel like we're in charge of the world right now? I mean, we feel, well, we're lucky if we feel like in charge of anything, right? Now, there's some of you who think you're in charge of the world. But what does it look like to rule over the world? How in the world do we... Because because our picture oftentimes of, we have this axiom, this saying, was like what? That absolute power, what? Corrupts absolutely. You know, when you give people power and what do they do with it? They use it for their own ends, their own purposes. We see it too much in our world where someone's put in power and what do they do? They just continue to grab more power. They abuse the power. They use the power for themselves. But what Paul is saying is we're called to rule with Jesus and like Jesus. And how did Jesus rule? Back to 8.17. If indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Jesus ruled. He showed us glory in His suffering. That suffering and glory are linked. How did Jesus rule? Where was Jesus crowned with glory? If we read the Gospel of John. Again, we're kind of jumping all over the Bible. The Gospel of John. Jesus talks about being glorified. Do you know where he is glorified? On the cross. That's his representation. This is what God's glory looks like. This is what God's reign and rule looks like to die for other people. To enter into the suffering of the world and to bring about freedom. And so when he's saying that we're called to rule with Christ and rule like Christ, we're called to rule like Christ in the mode of self-giving and sacrificing not to move ourselves into the halls of power and get in charge and tell everyone what they need to do, but instead to give ourselves up for other people. So how can we do this? 
I mean, how could we practically, as a congregation, how could Fruitland Covenant Church in our community do this? And I was fascinated that we just, at the, in the Evangelical Covenant Church in our conference, we were just given this opportunity to access a, a database, a demographics, they were, this piece of software where we can go on and look at the community around us. And I've just started playing with that a little bit and seeing what's in our community. What I was surprised by, and I still have questions about it, but I could plot our church and then I could map out and say, okay, I want to know within two miles of our church or three miles of our church, and it'll tell me how many people live there. And this is all from census data, how many households there are. Um, it talks about income levels and education levels. Of, but what was fascinating to me was I plotted it out, and I did it not by a circle, but by driving time. And I put it at 15 minutes, or at 15 minutes driving from our church. And I always think of our church as kind of being not a lot around us. And I looked at the numbers, and I, I had to look again, because it said within 15 minutes of our church, according to the demographics, anyone want to guess how many people live within 15 minutes of our church? What? Almost 30,000 within 15 minutes of the church. I know, I'm like, really? Because like, I think there's like five. <laughs> but 30,000 people within 15 minutes. And 15 minutes isn't a long drive. I mean, many of you, some of you come for, from farther than 15 minutes away. Some come from less. I come like 30 seconds. <laughs> but 30,000 people, and so... One of the things I want us to think about in this coming year is how we participate in this. How do we do it? And what I would invite us to do is to look around. Sometimes we're focused on telling people about, you know, getting people saved. And I think that's part of it. Sometimes we're telling like our focus is like get people to church. And that's a part of it. But what I think Paul is calling us to do is something bigger than that. Paul is calling us something bigger than that. It's to look around the world and see the pain and brokenness there to see what hurts are going on in our community. Is it broken families? Is it racial issues? Is it poverty? Is it joblessness? Is it, is it mental issues? What are the pain and brokenness in our community? The pain and brokenness, where are the sore spots, the, the hurts that are going on within our community? And by our community, this, this little area that lives right around Fruitland Covenant Church. What's the pain and the brokenness here? And how can we enter in? How can we be Jesus' representatives? How can we be the rulers? How can we be crowned with the glory that God has called us to be crowned with to bring hope and healing and restoration to those areas? Somebody asked me at the men's breakfast yesterday, you know, what are my goals for the church? And I think that's one of those is to figure out what are the hurts and pains and sorrows in our community, and how is God calling this church, how is God calling us as a people, how is He calling us to be a part of God's holy? How is He wanting to crown us with glory? How is He wanting to glorify us and in, in us be glorified in our community to bring about restoration and hope and healing? And it begins with, first of all, opening our eyes, opening our ears and talking and finding out what are those pains? Where is creation groaning? Where is the world groaning in the world around us? 
And that doesn't mean we're not concerned with what's going on in our larger country or around the world. But I suggest we can start with, in our own community, what are those things going on? And then what are we called to do? And I think we're called to do two things that Paul suggests here. One is we enter into that broken healing and we begin God's restoration process through praying, through prayer for our community. And I know sometimes we say, well, I don't know how to pray. And that's exactly Paul's point. Well, you don't know how to pray for this. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, Jesus knows exactly what to pray for. And the Spirit knows what to say. We do not know what we ought to pray for. He says, but. He doesn't say, well, we don't know what to pray for, so don't bother. He says, we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people or along with God's people in accordance with the will of God. So we begin to reign and rule over this community as God's representatives by prayer. By beginning to pray for the hurts and the pains of this community. And sometimes when you don't know how to pray, you just enter in with wordless groans because you know that the Spirit Himself, God Himself is praying because God knows exactly what to pray for and how to pray. And then He's also inviting us, I think, sometimes to take action. To look and to see how can we be the rulers the vice regents that God has called us to be in our local community? How can we bring about God's rule and reign to free creation, to restore it to what it was meant to be, to bring about, I like the word, human flourishing? What is it that's keeping people from human flourishing? And some of it can seem overwhelming, and some of it can feel like, I don't know what we can do. Again, men's breakfast yesterday, we were talking about housing. And if anyone's looked at housing lately, it's not easy when you're starting off to try and find a place to live. The prices have just gone skyrocketing. There are no starter homes anymore. I mean, I look, I look at once in a while on Facebook and a marketplace is having, I'll see a, a two bedroom, one bath house listed for $175,000. And we laugh, but that's where a lot of it is. And so we wonder about that in apartments or finding vehicles, everything that's out there. You know, we as an individual church don't necessarily have the resource to solve all that. And that may not be what God is calling us to do as a people or as individuals. Or it may be. I don't know. And also recognizing that we need to be careful because sometimes we have the temptation to say, but we can't do anything about that. We can't on our own, but God can. We may not have the resources to do that, but God does. Because we're not ruling and reigning on our own, but we're ruling and reigning along with Jesus and as God's representatives, and as God's representatives serving with Him and through Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what I would invite you to do as we enter into 2023 is to begin to think about spending time in the community and however that, whatever that looks like for you, 
Maybe it's walking in your neighborhood. Maybe it's talking to friends and neighbors and stuff, saying, where is the hurt and the pain that are going on in this community? And then begin to ask yourself, where is God calling me to enter into that? How is God calling me to be His ruler, to reign, to be glorified, to be conformed to the image of His Son, to help bring about restoration, healing, and flourishing in our community? Because that's what we've been saved to do. We haven't been saved just to go to heaven. We've been saved to do something here and now. We've been glorified. We will be glorified more fully, but right now we've been glorified. We've been conformed to the image of the Son. We've been called to do this here and now. So may we be conformed to Jesus this year. May we be glorified. May we be His rulers and bring about healing and hope and restoration in this community in which we live. Amen.